Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hi there, this is Meredith Nelson back with the Mormon Women Project. I'm so happy today to share an interview with Eva Weitzman, a professor of public management at the BYU Marriott School of Business. You might remember her from the BYU devotional she gave this past July entitled, A Future Only God Could See For You, which went viral in the Mormon world and commented on the obligation of each woman to define her own path in consultation with the Lord. In this interview, I follow up with Eva on some of the ideas in her devotional, and I learn more about her personal path, her work and advocacy, and how she and her husband have partnered in raising their family. So Eva, let's just jump right in. You teach at the BYU Marriott School of Business, but from what I understand, your work extends far beyond your teaching. Can you talk briefly about what else you're involved in professionally right now? Sure. So the specific work that I do, um, both in the school and outside, really deals mostly with government and nonprofit organizations. So I do everything from talking about how best to manage those to uh, volunteering in them myself as a board member uh, of a couple of different nonprofit organizations. And um, I sit on a board uh, that deals with evidence-based research at the state level um, for prevention of, of um, drug and alcohol use and suicide as well. So I do a lot of service, um, but it's really, really related to the work that I do at the Marriott School as well, the things that I teach and the things that I research. Is that the path you expected to go down when you started studying public policy and management in grad school? Did you Were you planning to come back and work with nonprofit organizations? So it's really funny because if you look backwards, it looks like a really straight line from everything that I did even in like high school and college, all the way up to now, it seems like it was just sort of, you know, one brick building on top of another. But at the time, I had no idea where I was headed or what I was going to end up doing. I certainly didn't envision myself being a full-time professor, much less at BYU. I was never a student here. So, you know, it felt at the time like a totally... uh, disjointed maybe path or at least not a straight shot um but looking back it all really makes sense so i don't know quite how to make sense of that or to answer your question other than to say no i didn't know i was going to be here Uh, (laughs) and yet it it kind of makes sense when you look backwards that's really comforting because i'm the type who is always looking at others and saying wow she just knew what she was doing right from the beginning i wish i i wish i had known what i was doing because my path is a little more wiggly you know i mean it feels wiggly but when and when you look at other people's like oh you know that's a natural progression clearly that's the next step for them and you know when it's your shoes that you're wearing it's it's not always so easy (laughs) right so what initially excited you about doing this work about public policy and management and, and the analysis you do for nonprofit organizations Sure. So really, it's the public and nonprofit piece that was always sort of inside me somewhere. Like, I just kind of knew. I was drawn to a lot of arts and a lot of volunteer opportunities when I was in high school. Uh, That continued in college. I was um, an undergrad at the University of Utah, and I was really engaged with the Benyon Center there. And I I did a lot of volunteering with them um, and actually helped develop service learning courses, which was a brand new thing then. And so I was just kind of drawn to it. And when it was time to graduate, I 
was only interested in applying for nonprofit or government jobs. Like I, I think I applied for like one private sector job and I, I really didn't have a lot of interest in actually taking that job. So I ended up working at a nonprofit. So, but, but it never really occurred to me. Like I wasn't self-aware enough to realize that, that that was something I was choosing. It was just, that's what resonated with me. That's what I cared about. That's, that's what was interesting to me. And I didn't want to do a job that didn't interest me. And I wasn't about the money. I wasn't about making someone else money. You know, I wasn't even about the innovation of the products or the services, which can be really cool. Um, for me, it was about service. It was always about service. And so that's just kind of where, where I ended up. And so I'd always kind of worked with nonprofits and worked in a variety of different sort of nonprofit fields or more public service oriented fields. And so uh, once I ended up working in a nonprofit, I kind of fell in love with the work and, and not just the specific work of, of that organization. We were uh, developing educational software at that organization, but but the idea of working for the public good in general. So it, it sort of chose me, which sounds super cliche, but that's exactly what happened. Now, listening to the devotional that you gave for BYU a few months ago, it seems like you had several revelatory moments along your educational path that surprised you. You were talking about how, you know, this isn't necessarily what you expected for yourself. And the question I had was, how did you recognize that it was God's voice directing you in those moments? Yeah. So I think that's, for me, been a serious matter of practice over time, trying to understand when it's his voice and when it isn't his voice and when it's um, my voice or maybe even coming from someplace a little more sinister, right? I mean, there are a lot of thoughts that that come through one's mind and um, sort of discerning them is challenging. For me, there are a couple of experiences that sort of set apart the Lord's voice. Um, the first one is uh, the feeling of the spirit. So less about the message and more about the messenger. So for me, I experience it a lot the way that it's described in the scriptures as a burning in the bosom and a clarity in the mind. Um, I feel it in my mind and in my heart. And it's, um, especially when it's strong, it's it's an overwhelming burning sensation. And it's clear and it's unmistakable. There are other things that uh, are similar to it in some ways, but but it's very distinctive. And so that's the first thing. And and for the biggest moments in my life, that's been kind of the the key distinguishing factor is that I'm feeling the spirit when I have whatever the thought is um, that I'm having. The second piece, <coughs> excuse me, goodness. The second piece is um, kind of the way that that those revelatory moments are communicated to me. Um, oftentimes I experience those in the same way that I learn. So I'm a very auditory learner. That's my learning style. And so a lot of times I will receive promptings as words or phrases. And they're very short and they're very succinct and they're not always super like easy to interpret. Um, but when I'm feeling the spirit in that way and I'm receiving a message in that way, I know that that's something that I need to study out or search out or figure out. Um, and sometimes it's more clear than that. Sometimes it's just like the one that you're referring to that I talked about in devotional. You are coming back here for a Ph.D. I mean, it was as clear as that. Um, but there are other times where it's a little less sort of obvious 
what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and it takes a little more study and effort and prayer to figure it out. Um, but the more sort of focused I am on the spirit and being able to feel the spirit, making sure that I'm meaningfully taking the sacrament on a regular basis, reflecting on my own repentance process, choosing things in my life that are conducive to feeling that spirit and feeling it strongly. Uh, when, when I'm doing those things, which I tend to do, especially when I'm more desperate for input from heaven, um, and should be doing all the time, but, uh, but I'm especially good at when, when I know I need those messages coming, um, sort of doing that helps to strengthen the signal in a way, um, and makes it more potent and I, and it's more discernible. Yeah. Do you feel like when you're doing those things in your life, it, it almost increases your trust in your ability to receive messages. So you trust your instincts more and you trust the, the ideas that you have more. Yeah. And I feel like there's more sort of general clarity about it. I mean, when, when things are going well in the spiritual regard and they don't always, I mean, they're, you know, life is challenging. The natural man is challenging. Like all of these things are hard to sort of navigate, but I find that when I'm doing a better job at it and I'm being more conscious and mindful about that, that I can actually sit in a moment and sort of reflect inward and feel the spirit without having to look, ask for a, an answer to prayer or any of that. I can just feel it mm. as a, as a companion. Um, and the more that is present, the more discernment I have when I have an idea and the spirit leaves, I know that's not necessarily the right path or, um, you know, if I am trying to make a choice and the spirit is present, then that's the case. And sometimes the spirit will be present and also communicate to me that I need to make the choice that it's not going to, you know, um, the heavenly father's not going to give me the answer that I'm seeking and the way that I'm seeking it, but the spirit won't go away for that. So the presence is still there, even though the answer isn't. Mm. Um, and again, I wish that were more constant than it is. I, you know, I, I hunger for that when I don't have that constant presence. Um, Can you share an example of a time that you felt that kind of clarity and peace when an answer came to you? Yeah. Uh, so most of the ones that, that I've experienced most clearly have dealt either with my educational path or with my path as a parent, as a, as a mother. Um, and there are big ones and there are small ones. So one example is... Um, I was 37 weeks pregnant with my son and we've had a lot of challenges with pregnancies in the past. In fact, I, I carried one son, um, for 34 weeks before I lost him. Mm. And so my doctors were really concerned about me being able to, to get him all the way to term, especially because we weren't totally sure what had gone wrong before. And so they wanted to go in and, and, uh, surgically, birth my child, right? They, it was, they were basically saying, you know, you need to make this decision and, and we want to have him in like three days. And um, there were questions about hormone treatments and all kinds of things to make sure his lungs were developed. I mean, there was just a lot of stuff kind of coinciding with that. And my husband and I needed to make the decision that day. Mm. We had a couple of hours before our doctor was going to leave and we needed to make the decision. So we took um, our other three kiddos over to a friend's house changed our clothes and went to the temple. 
we didn't have enough time to do a session or really any service at all in the temple. We just didn't have enough time. So we sat in the hallway and prayed. And, um, you know, I started to pray and I'm, I'm mid prayer in my mind, right? We're like, we're sitting next to each other on this couch in the temple hallway and I'm mid prayer and the spirit sort of fills me. And, and again, I experienced it sort of auditorily. So it was almost like a voice saying to my mind, go have your baby. And I, started to sort of argue with the spirit, like, but is, are his lungs going to be okay? I need to make sure that he's healthy. I don't know if I can go through another lot. You know, I start sort of arguing with this prompting and it came back, just go have your baby. Yes, but am I supposed to get the hormone shots? And what do I do? Just go have your baby. And that third time I just knew, I, I knew it was going to be okay. It may be hard in some ways, but it was going to be okay. And I knew what needed to be done and it was clear. And so I finished my prayer and I turned to my husband who finished his prayer about the same time. And we looked at each other and wordlessly we stood up and we walked out of the temple, got in the car and went back to the hospital and told the doctor our decision. We didn't even need to have a conversation about it because we both just knew. So that was one. It's a little more recent. Um, that was about, let's see, my son's about 15 months old now, almost 16 months old. So it was about that long ago. Yeah. Wow. And so you have four children. Is that mm-hmm. right? I do. And well, four here. <laughs> four here with four us. Here. Four yeah. here. And then two more, uh, two more that we look forward to meeting someday. Yes. And then one of your children is adopted. Is that right? She is, yes. And you referred to that story in your devotional about the moment where you you and your husband received the inspiration to adopt her. And I'm wondering if you can share that story here too. Yeah, so it's another one. It's actually really similar to the story that I just told. We, My husband had a job offer in Washington, D.C. And knowing what you now know about me and my sort of passion for public service, you understand that, that the idea of going and living and working in Washington, D.C. was very attractive to the both of us. Um, and he had this job offer, but I couldn't get confirmation that that's really what I was supposed to do. I was preparing to be a stay-at-home mom to my then very young eldest daughter. Um, and, you know, with the salary that he'd been offered, we would have been living sort of out in the suburbs. And and I was just trying to get Heavenly Father's confirmation that that's what he wanted for me and that I was going to be okay. Because, frankly, that whole thing as exciting as it was, and as perfect as it seemed, also was a bit scary for a variety of reasons. So um, I was looking for that sense of spirit and that sense of confirmation. And that's what I wanted before I was willing to say yes. And so this was a very tense time, actually, for my husband and I. Um, He was really excited about the job, and I couldn't give him any good reasons not to take it, other than that I didn't feel good about it yet you know, uh, which didn't make any intellectual sense. Nonetheless, that's what it was. So we had been praying and fasting and we went to the temple uh, and our temple district placed us in Kentucky. There was no Indianapolis temple at the time. So it was uh, a little harder to kind of get to the temple than, than it is now where I, where I live in Utah Valley and there are temples everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we went to the temple together um, And we were asked to go do ceilings that day. They needed uh, additional help up in the ceiling room. So we went to do ceilings 
And, you know, as we were doing that, I just had, again, this overwhelming sense of the spirit followed by an impression that we needed to adopt. This was not at all the question that we had gone to the temple with. We wanted to know whether or not to take the job. And this is what was causing stress in our lives and our marriage. And that's what we really needed help with, or so we thought. Um, But this was the answer that came. And so we were walking out of the building and we were headed to our car. And uh, Owen asked me, you know, did you have any impressions? And I said, I did, but uh, it was it was kind of weird. And he said, <laughs> I had one too, and mine was kind of weird. And I said, okay, you know, I'll tell you mine if you'll tell me yours. And he said, okay. And I don't remember which of us said it first, but we both had had the same impression <laughs> that we needed to adopt. So you know, rather than worrying about the job for the next few weeks, I started uh, figuring out adoption papers and and started figuring out what that process would look like for us. And that was the beginning of the process that led to our adoption of Amelia. Wow, what an amazing story. I mean, and then how did that influence the job decision? Did he end up taking it in the end? Yeah, we ended up actually not taking the job. So so we were both in master's programs still at this point. And so I was still in classes. And um, at some point after the adoption revelation, I was sitting in my very last nonprofit management class of the semester. Um, and it was being taught by a professor who studies nonprofit collaboration. And she was sharing some of her research on that last day of class. Because that's a fun thing professors get to do sometimes, is sort of share their research, right, with their students that they wouldn't normally otherwise get to do. So she was in there, and this was long enough ago that she's like, these are transparencies, right, that she's using with an overhead projector, which, you know, hardly anyone even knows what that is anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's switching these transparencies. And unexpectedly, out of seemingly nowhere, the, the lights are dim in the room, and she's up at the front talking about this. And I felt the spirit overwhelmingly. And, and again, a voice in my mind said, you're going to come back here for a PhD. So I did not know how that was going to go over with husband. Um, and we just had this experience with the adoption piece where we had had our independent revelations. And so that was now the new model for me of how this was supposed to work, right? That that we would receive our revelations, our personal revelations in parallel, and then that we would share them and reconcile them. And so I told him, I have had what I feel like is an answer to my prayers, and I know what I'm going to do. Um, and I need you to be as sure about what you're going to do. And then we're going to figure out how to do both of those things that the Lord is asking of us. And so he went away and prayed more again, still right mm-hmm. about all of this and came back to me and said, you know what? My clearance for this job in DC is still coming through. You know, this is a, a multi-week, sometimes months long process. Uh, but in the meantime, I've been offered this internship in Finland um, with the Finnish Literature Society, and I'd really like to take it. So can we go to Finland for the summer, or not for the summer, sorry, for the year? <laughs> it's a little longer than a summer. Um, and, you know, that totally worked with my plans. I, I couldn't apply for my program for about another six months, because uh, that's when the application deadlines were. And so I'm like, sure, let's let's go to Finland. That sounds like a great adventure. Um I felt totally good about that. It wasn't, you know, sort of for me, it wasn't a big revelatory answer. It was just, sure, this fits with what I already know I need to be doing. And then, so we did that. Um, And then 
later as we sort of reconciled things, um, we decided indeed to go back to Indiana to, to start more graduate work. Hmm. So we never did take the job. That was hard for both of us, actually. It was hard for me to give up on sort of living in D.C. and doing that. It's still a goal of mine to, to do that someday. Um, and for him, it was difficult because this was a, a dream job opportunity for him. But in the end, that, at least at that time, is not what was meant for us. You have been so bold, you know, in following this path, giving birth to and adopting and mothering four children without taking a break from your professional pursuits. And it sounds like there was a time when that had been your plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a baby in the first year of your master's program, and then you adopted Amelia. Is that right? Before your yeah. master's was over? Uh, yeah. So we we actually, we started the process with Amelia, but I didn't end up adopting her until, oh, it was quite quite a while later, the the whole process of adoption is really super complicated. And we we started down one uh, route looking at um, fostering to adopt and then sort of got led away from that, although I still have sort of an affection for that process and and hope someday to go back through a foster to adopt kind of situation. Mm. Uh, But we got sort of led away from that. And then it takes forever to get your home study done and the paperwork all done. And it's this emotional roller coaster and there's so much work. And then they do this home study where they come and, you know, it's like, do you pass the bar as being qualified to be a parent? And it's, I mean, it's like nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. And then once you get through all of that, then there's a waiting process that is of indeterminate duration. So for us, it was um, about nine months that we were waiting once all the paperwork was done and ready. And our little story was in the book that birth moms could look at and on the website. Um, and so then, and actually Amelia was not, Uh, her birth mom was not the first birth mom to reach out to us. So there was a lot of up and down emotionally through the process of will we or won't we get a chance to adopt this child, you know. So it was a really start to finish a very long process. And we ended up adopting Amelia uh, during the doctoral program. Mm. So it was a little little further down the road. But yes, kids in school, kids in work. (laughs) All mixed together. Yeah, I've done all of that. Mm -hmm. We could have a whole another interview just about the adoption experience, I'm sure. Um, So I think for a lot of women, that sounds really daunting to do to balance, you know, your school with your mothering, your graduate school with your mothering. So can you talk about how you balance those two callings? Yeah, so I mean, the first thing I'll say is, you know, we did kind of what the Lord was asking. And so that's what made it easy. Um, not easy. It was never easy. That's a terrible word to use uh, in relation <laughs> to this. Um, but that's what made it sort of emotionally possible. And we were in school, both of us. And so, you know, it, it ended up where there were classes he wanted to take that he couldn't take and classes that I wanted to take that I couldn't take because we couldn't get our schedules to work out. And there was a lot of give and take in that. But honestly, being students and parents at the same time was great. Uh, because we could trade off, you know, it was hard in a lot of ways. We were super exhausted all the time. And there's a lot of stuff we just didn't do. I mean, there are, you know, people here that we lived in Indiana for close to seven years. They're like, oh, you know, did you go to basketball games? And did you, (laughs) you know, do all these other things? And no, we didn't do anything. We did our school and we parented. And that was pretty much it. We, you know, our church callings were in there somewhere too, but, but really just surviving 
you know, parenting in school was was enough for the two of us, just trying to stay sane and get some sleep here and there. So it was super hard, but you know, it was it was so fun and we were just trying to figure it all out together and it was so good for our partnership. So I had Julia, my eldest, I had her during the spring semester of my first year in uh, the master's program. And I had set up as much sort of independent schooling as I could do. I took a couple of online classes that semester. I took uh, a research class. And then I also took a class that only met on Saturdays. And it, but it was all day Saturday. And it was on the Indianapolis campus, which is an hour north of where we were in Bloomington. And so the way we made that work, because my daughter was super, super young, I just had her right in the middle of that semester. And so Owen and I would both go up to Indianapolis and I would sit outside the door of the classroom and nurse Julia and then hand her over to him. And he would go wander around campus for about two hours until she started to get fussy again. And then he would come back and bring her to me and I would go and I would sit outside the door and by sitting outside the door, I could still listen to the lecture. Had I been a bolder person, I just probably would have brought her in there with me, but I wasn't at that point quite so <laughs> ready to <laughs> ready to own it all quite that uh, thoroughly. But um, but I sat there on the floor nursing my baby next to the open door to the classroom, and I just have this strong memory of that and and imagining him sort of walking around campus to make this possible for me that I could take this class. You know, he's not getting any of his studying done on that Saturday because he's he's just supporting me. Um, and of course, I tried to do the same for him uh, in the things that that he has endeavored to do. So hmm. that is such a powerful image to me of you sitting on the floor outside that classroom, nursing your daughter while you listen to the lecture, because um, it just shows what's possible. You know, I think so often we're we're too quick to say, oh, I could never do it that way. But here you did it and it worked for you and your daughter and your husband was there circling and supporting you both. Yeah. So what, if you could give one piece of advice to other LDS mothers who feel called to further their education during their childbearing years, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, if I only get one piece of advice, it's always going to be the same advice, and that is seek the Lord's counsel and follow it, and he will make the world possible for you. I just, you know, especially through the devotional, which I very much feel was not my message. I feel like that was his message. And I felt very humbled to be the messenger for that. But but through that process, I had this overwhelming sense of love from him and empowerment from him for his daughters. And so that's that's the message, right? I mean, I feel like that's that's it. That's what we need to do. We need to seek his counsel and trust it and follow it. And sometimes it is so hard in so many ways. I mean, socially and emotionally and physically even, it can be so hard, but he will make possible for us what we need to be able to do. It sounds like your husband was a big part of how it was made possible that you two have followed a really cooperative model in your parenting and in your, and in your partnership and your marriage. Um, so I'm wondering if, I mean, that anecdote was a really good demonstration of it, but I'm, I'm wondering about today, what does that cooperation look like between you on a day-to-day -day basis in your parenting? 
Yeah. So um, my husband actually uh, also finished a PhD and has, you know, has the opportunity if he so chooses to sort of go into academia and do some of that. Um, but he's also had other things that he's interested in doing. He is an entrepreneur. He runs his own translation business and is uh, one of the most sought after finished English translators in the world. So he has, he has his own stuff, right? That, that he is passionate about and that he's excited about. He's also a, a mountain guide, um, a certified <laughs> mountain guide and rock climbing guide. And he loves the outdoors and loves doing all of that and especially working with clients. And so what that sort of looks like today is a lot of us talking about it and trying to figure out what works for him and what works for me and what isn't working for him and what isn't working for me. And sometimes there's conflict involved in that, trying to figure out like, you know, how do we make sure that each of us is being able to follow the pursuits that we care about and that we find fulfilling while also supporting the other. And then of course, you know, primarily making sure that especially while our kids are home and, and so young that we are parenting them, that we're raising them well, that we are spending time with them and having fun with them and guiding them and doing all of those really important things. So um, I mentioned my husband runs his own business. He works from home. And so when I am on campus teaching or meeting with students, I uh, know that he's at home watching our now 16-month-old kiddo, right? Or, mm -hmm. you know, handling pickups if necessary. And we communicate about, you know, who's doing what. And sometimes things fall through the cracks. It's sort of inevitable. But mm -hmm. uh, we try to make sure that the important things, you know, we're on top of. And I try to do a fair amount of my work at home as well. Although, frankly, working at home brings its own challenges because... Mm -hmm. It's re it's hard enough to be trying to do as many different things as we're doing. It's even more hard to try to do them all at exactly the same time, which is what parenting at home and working at home looks like, right? It's like you're trying to you're trying to do all the things all at exactly the same time instead of sort of staggered by an hour or two. You know, now I'm parenting for these three hours and now I'm teaching my class for these three hours. And so for whomever is working at home, that's probably the hardest part. And that's one of the things we've learned over time is that it's really best if the parent who's working is working and not trying to parent at the same time. So juggling that is kind of a challenge. But that's that's kind of how we make things work now. Based on your devotional, I had the question, how are you and your husband preparing your own daughters to make deliberate life choices in consultation with the spirit? Because you talked about how we sometimes clip the wings of women and girls in the church and just in the world. And so I want to hear about what you're doing you know, to make sure that you don't clip your daughter's wings. Sure. So I think the first most important thing is trying to teach them to feel the spirit themselves so that they can be empowered themselves to find God's direction and to follow it. I think that by our own examples, just what we do day in and day out is itself going to be empowering. My parents empowered me in that way. They did what they did and they didn't need to tell me, you know, to, to do things or be ambitious. I knew it was acceptable because that's what they were doing. You know, I, the example and role model that I had in my home was my mom and she was, you know, a top management executive. That's what she did. She was doing things of worldwide consequence and, you know, she'd come home and she'd talk about it and, 
And so I knew that that was an option for me. I never imagined that it wasn't. So, so I think just kind of having a home where everybody's supporting everybody and doing what matters to them is kind of one of our top priorities. My eldest is into all kinds of arts right now. She loves the sciences as well and does a lot of stuff with, with science and technology, but she, her passion right now is in the arts. And so she sings and she uh, does photography and part of what we do with her is just kind of encourage that. And we imagine, you know, different career paths that that could lead to. And we try to connect her with people who have followed those career paths so that she can explore that and figure out what her life would look like. My six-year-old is kind of a naturalist. She She's an outdoorsy person at this point in her life. I don't know if it'll stay that way, but right now she just loves all things outdoors. She loves bugs and plants and rocks and all those things. So we have rock collections around the house and we talk about, you know, what it would be like to be a geologist. And, you know, we've connected her with different people who do uh, careers like that. There's a joke that any of our kids' friends who come over and stay for dinner at some point in the dinner conversation, my husband will ask them, so what are you going to get your master's degree in? (laughs) And that's, you know, I mean, that's just kind of the environment in our home, mostly because that's how we've been, right? That's what we've done. So, so I think really it's just about sort of getting in there with the kids and imagining with them rather than saying, oh, you can't, or you shouldn't, or you oughtn't do whatever it is. And sometimes that's harder than others. You know, I have tended more toward uh, the sciences in my professional life and in my educational life, even though I love the arts and I'm, I'm doing things more with that now. But for a while, it was hard for me to imagine sending my daughter into an arts career. And I was trying to like pull her a different direction at some point. You know, I realized that that was not what I needed to be doing. What I needed to be doing was encouraging her in what her passions were. And it's been so exciting to watch her flourish the more that we've done that and encouraged her in what she wants to do. Um, And it may change or it may stay the same. You know, people do all kinds of different things in their lives and life is long. Mm-hmm. You made this clear in your devotional by talking about the experiences of some of your friends, but I want to give you the opportunity to make it clear here as well. If one of your daughters decided that she didn't want a professional career and wanted to, for instance, be a stay-at-home mother, would you feel like she was not spreading her wings? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, being a mom is the most challenging and fulfilling uh, experience. It's, it's incredible. And there are so many times in my life where I think about that and I imagine what it would be like if that were my only major role or responsibility. Um, and sometimes I think about that kind of yearningly. And other times, you know, especially when it gets really hard or the <laughs> kids are pitching fits or, you know, the house is a disaster. And I think if this was all I was doing, I think I would go crazy, you know. So, I mean, I think some of this is a matter of personality as well. But, you know, I don't think I don't think anyone in any circumstance is really if they're following what what the Lord wants for them. And if they're happy, nobody's nobody's wrong or limiting themselves in those ways. I think what's limiting is if Heavenly Father opens doors for you and encourages you to walk through them and you choose not to. And I think that's true whether that's being a stay-at-home mom, which is itself a courageous act, or whether it's, you know, taking a job, which is also a courageous act. 
do you feel like you have overcome any wing clipping in your own life? So this is a funny thing. Because of the home environment that I was raised in, my parents and my grandparents with whom I was really close, everybody was so encouraging of my education and of, you know, an ultimate professional life, including, you know, again, my grandparents who are of a generation where that wasn't necessarily normal, you know. And then the school environment I was in was incredibly encouraging and nurturing of any pursuit that I was interested in. And so I didn't notice any of that for myself really possibly ever. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, it, it wasn't until, it wasn't until much, much later in my career that I even had offhand comments that kind of rubbed me the wrong way or whatever. I just, I've been really lucky in that regard. So the weird thing about the wing clipping is that I've gotten to this place where I am and, and being a professor, I get to make contact with a lot of people, including folks who are mid-career. And through my teaching, especially of, of folks that are my students, both the mid-career students and, and our more traditional daytime students who, who typically come straight out of an undergrad, it's through their stories, really, that I've started to see all the limitations that get put on people either in their home environments or their work environments or their school environments. I used to teach a, a little math refresher course. We called it math camp just for fun um, before the master's because a lot of people hadn't taken math in a long time. And it was a good chance because we have such a quantitative program to sort of brush up on some of the mathematical concepts they were going to be expected to know. And I had several women students come up to me and say, you know, when I was learning this stuff the first time, my teacher told me I didn't need to know it because I was a girl. And it wouldn't matter in my life. Now to have a teacher tell you that, right? Yeah. And and more than once I had women who who would literally like break down in tears talking to me about this and say, I didn't even know I was capable of learning these concepts because of the messages that I have received from the people in my life. So that does two things for me. One, it makes me really grateful for the experience that I've had and the mentorship that I've had and the belief that people have placed in me for my parents and my grandparents and my siblings and everyone who supported me and, and not clipped my wings, right? Mm. But it also makes me uh, absolutely want to advocate for a world in which everyone gets that kind of opportunity and experience the way that I did. And I find it incredibly um, upsetting and frankly a little disturbing that that these experiences are so prevalent. Is there a way that we, in particular as Mormons, do this, clip the wings of women and girls? So, I mean, I think this is kind of a, a hard question because because really I think there's a, a culture and a time period in which the answer is yes. I don't want to label all Mormonism and certainly not the doctrine as something that is stunting for women because I don't at all feel that way. But I do feel like there's been a period of time, and I think it's in the broader society as well. I don't think it's just LDS culture. I think it's in the broader society as well, where there's been a pretty specific view of what a woman's role is, and not just during the childbearing years, but during her whole sort of life, that this is the, the one and only appropriate path for her. And I see it sort of originating out of um, some cultural and industrial shifts that happened around the 50s 
And I think that that's something that our culture, the LDS culture, has been particularly susceptible to. So I think it's a a worldly falsehood. And I think in some ways, Mormon women lost their way and became worldly, but not in the way that we usually think of that, not worldly in the way of contributing to the world of work or of society, but but rather the opposite, worldly in that we were following a pattern that did not originate from God. And mm-hmm. that's the idea that we do not, you know, have a voice in society or oughtn't, or that we shouldn't have a place in the workplace. None of that is consistent with the early LDS church. None of that is consistent with the role and prominence of the Relief Society and other organizations within our current church organization. It's not consistent with the words of prophets. So I think, you know, and and again, it's kind of a flip because usually when we talk about women being worldly, it's sort of this idea that they, you know, worldly women don't want to have kids or they, you know, the primacy of of work and and doing things in male dominated fields and all these things that that somehow is worldly. But but I actually think about it very differently. I think that there's this other worldly idea, this this image of the you know I mean it's kind of iconic and and stereotypical. But the you know pearls and heels wearing stay at home mom who's using her brand new appliances in the 50s to cook dinner for the family. You know, mm-hmm. and cooking dinner for the family is great. I'm not a big fan of heels because they hurt my feet and hips. <laughs> Pearls are lovely. You know, I mean, all of that is fine. But this image is not God's image. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've adopted that, this commercial image, you know, and it's about the same time that TV is happening and becoming prominent in people's lives. So so this this image was literally transported into people's homes as as an example. And I think our love of our families and our love of our children made us particularly susceptible to that iconic imagery. Mm. And so I think we lost ourselves a little bit. That is a very compelling interpretation of of our history and and our present state and also just the word worldly. Um, it's true that if we reach back to the women of our heritage, our Mormon heritage, their wings are so expansive, we we are barely beginning to comprehend them. So I think that that history is a really big key to kind of reclaiming who we are and understanding our full potential, whether that full potential is expressed in a professional career or in our homes with our children. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so thank yeah. you for an- for answering a hard question. Sure. In your devotional talk, you you read a quote from President Eyring that I'm going to read right here. Uh, it said, "Part of the tragedy you must avoid is to discover too late that you missed an opportunity to prepare for a future only God could see for you." I wanted to ask you if you feel like there is such a thing as too late. I've heard from women who say they wish they had gotten degrees and pursued careers, but that they hadn't realized it was a legitimate choice when they were newly married or when they were in school. I've heard from other women who regret postponing motherhood or who regret not serving a mission or, you know, just women who feel like they missed the opportunity that President Eyring describes and have found themselves facing this kind of tragic regret. And I want you to answer, if you can, what is what is her way forward, the woman that faces that? Sure. Well, I think I think it's really key to remember that that in the scriptures, 
the Lord says that all things can be consecrated for our good, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Including kind of the the more difficult experiences in our lives. And there are there are a couple of um, examples in the scriptures where that happens, both sort of ancient scripture and modern scripture. So, so the idea, first of all, that that any mistakes or regrets that we might have or difficult experiences that that we're dealing with, um, that that somehow has to stay tragic. You know, I, I don't think that's the case. I think I think even the regrets and even the missed opportunities, and I think there is such a thing. I, I think there is such a thing as opportunities that, that won't come again, and that can be hard. But I think that those things can be consecrated for our good. I think we can learn from them. I think we can teach others using those. And I think we can pick up wherever we are and improve always. I don't think it's ever too late to get... Uh, knowledge, certainly not knowledge, especially in the day and age that we live in, where knowledge is is freely and widely available. We can stream it straight into our homes and and learn and wrestle with ideas and talk to other people in real time. And and so we never have to feel like we've missed the opportunity to learn in that way. I don't even think it's ever too late to sort of, you know, return for a formal education. We, you know, we see periodically, you know, folks in their 80s who are getting their first degree or getting a master's degree or or doing whatever and i think i think that's something that um can and should be embraced by people who who might feel those regrets if it's right for them now there may be opportunities that aren't right you know or aren't the right time so i would say the same thing that I said before, and that is get the guidance of, of Heavenly Father. You know, what does he say about how to make sense of the opportunities that have passed you by? You know, I am one of those who regrets not having served a full-time mission. I had always intended to, and when the time came, I found myself unprepared. And I I chose not to do that, and I, I regret that decision. And that, you know, is gone. I, I can't go back and be a young sister missionary again. There are other missionary opportunities that I can embrace and have done, but it's different. But I can take that regret and I can allow God to consecrate it for my good. I can I can let him teach me through that experience so that I don't make that mistake again, so that I can encourage others um, using my experience to help invite the spirit into their lives so that they can make the decisions that are right for them. So, yeah, I think it's possible to miss a future that that we could have had, but that doesn't mean that the Lord won't make something beautiful of the future we have now. One last question. How do you feel that your education or your or your career have helped you build the kingdom, have helped you serve the purpose God has for you? I think I'm still sort of figuring that out every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I think about sort of what drew me to some of this and the visions that I had as a as a younger person where, you know, through government and nonprofit institutions, I was going to make these broad and sweeping societal improvements and, and just, you know, touch so many lives by improving these institutions. And I, I still believe some of that. But what I found um, more and more as time passes is that the real influence that I have is one-on-one that it's the individual student who comes into my office with something either related to class or frankly, more often, totally unrelated to class. And the ways that we are able to relate and talk and connect and share and bear our testimonies with each other 
that's the stuff that really matters and that's the stuff that impacts the world and that I think is what God wants of all of us you know I don't think you have to be you know some professor or some PhD somewhere to have the kind of influence that God wants us to have I think it's moment to moment day to day how do you treat the sales clerk at the grocery store do you stop and talk to your friend who needs to talk even though it means you're going to be late to your meeting Do you take the phone call from your mom, even though you have a million other things to do? I think that's influence that everyone can have. And that I think is my real calling. And frankly, that's much harder than writing a research paper or teaching a class because it requires being emotionally present, which is scary sometimes. Sometimes it's overwhelming and difficult. You know, it means listening. It means making time. It means all kinds of tiny sacrifices that that we don't really think of or honor on a day-to-day basis. But I think that's I think that's the vision. And like I said, I don't think that requires a PhD or a career. I think that just requires us being in tune moment to moment and and trying to seek that guidance and and follow it. Well, thank you, Eva, for sharing your wisdom with us and for your advocacy. And I look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been really fun. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.